Hello and welcome to ED's Sustainable Business Covered podcast. More worth the wait than a Brexit white paper, more captivating than a surprise Love Island vote-off, and far less painful than England's agonising World Cup exit. So yes, we are recording this episode on Thursday, the 12th of July. The editorial team are here with me. We're back all together in the studio for episode 44 of the show. So coming up on today's episode, Matt is taking on a behind-the-scenes tour of the UPS depot with the firm's Director of Sustainability. So we try to work through uh, organisations that bring cities together and and we try to prioritise what we're doing and we try to uh, encourage cities to collaborate. Matt joins a Green Tech Challenge to hear from some of the world's most exciting sustainability innovators. Am I right in thinking that your your main aim is to essentially make your product obsolete? Eventually we get to the point where there's no rubbish in the oceans and then that product's kind of served its purpose? Or Our mission statement is to be in a world where sea bins are no longer required. And Matt talks us through the next wave of interviews he's lined up for the show. More Matt's than uh, an interface showroom, I think, in this episode of Sustainable Business Covered then. Um, how are we doing today then, Matt? Yeah, been a been a busy man, as, as you can gauge from um, that intro there. But uh, all in all, not, not too bad. I think keeping myself busy is probably the best thing we can do in these, in these testing times. Yeah, I can, uh, you can probably sense it's... Uh, it's bit quiet in the room here at the moment I think we're all a little bit downbeat I think I must say we took a bit of a bold decision to host the episode the morning after England's World Cup semi-final I think we're all of course hoping to be sitting here in our um yeah in our Gareth Southgate waistcoats um brimming with excitement and uh, delight at what happened but uh I think as evidenced by George's face there in the corner especially um that's clearly not the case um George you do seem to have been hit by last night uh the hardest. I really I don't want this discussion to become a World Cup podcast, but um, I think let's just get it all off your chest now. Is there anything you'd like to say to the world about what happened last night before we swiftly move on? Uh, yeah, as you can probably tell, Luke, I have I felt better before, I'll be honest with you. Um, how you can go from such ecstasy to agony in 90 minutes, it's, it's really <laughs> it's a devastating blow, to be honest. Um, but I don't want to bring the whole mood down. Um, I feel like this is going to be good for me, this discussion. It could be, if anything else, uh, a bit of therapy. This will be the one, yeah. Okay. Um, I think it's perhaps worth reminding ourselves of our World Cup winner predictions, which we made in the last episode as well, <laughs> just to underline how on the ball we are. I think, was it George, Sarah and I all said Germany? Mm, yes. And Matt, you said? Brazil. Brazil. Okay. So well, essentially, by, by default, I win. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Oh, they I got, see. Yeah, they, they got through the, they got yeah. some of the knockout stages for a start. So yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll wear that badge of honour proudly. Yeah, I think it would have been incredible if one of us had called Croatia or <laughs> maybe France. I mean, France is potentially realistic, but anyway, um, that's it. World Cup out of the way. Uh, we're not mentioning the World Cup anymore. Uh, and if you are feeling a little bit depressed by it all, then uh, this is the show that will get you back in the positive uh, sustainability spirit. So, um, okay, and Sarah, um, might as well introduce everyone on in the team now. So, Sarah, um, our new reporter, I mean, new, I suppose, you've been here a couple of months now, two or three months, haven't you? So, um, our established reporter, how are you doing this morning? Um, don't feel particularly established this morning, <laughs> what with um, the actions of last night and the fact that I have a sprained ankle and I'm feeling a bit sorry for myself in the office. Okay, well. Um, but willing to bounce back, good. as always. Good, good. Um, and what's been, I mean, your two, two, two months, two and a half months, I mean, what's been your highlight so far in terms of reporting on the green economy? Um, it's a tough one, but the highlight would have to be, obviously, the show in Birmingham. ED, ED Live, Live, yeah. You trained her well, haven't we? Trained her well. Didn't have that written down anywhere, but yeah. How well spent that was. No, there's just a lot of buzz and so many different topics and thinkers in one place that it's just a really inspirational vibe and a pleasure to sort of cover and host, so have Good. those two hats on. Oh, very nice to hear. Yeah, well, um, if you like that, then uh, the Sustainability Leaders Forum in January, in February 2019 will be a big one. Um, well, there we go. At least someone's feeling a little bit optimistic then. Um, so I think, yeah, today, George, if there's one uh, aim of the show today, I think it's to um, to remind you that there are reasons to be to be cheerful and optimistic. Um, I'll try a couple now on you, actually, George. Okay. Um, Donald Trump's arrived in the UK for the start of his two-day visit. Excellent. Okay. Uh, the Brexit white paper is being officially published. Even better. <laughs> uh, that's it, I'm out. There's nothing else this week that I can think of in current affairs. Matt, Sarah, is there anything else that you can think of? No, not off the, 
Bloody hell. Not off the top of my head. Sorry, I can't be uh, can't be too helpful. Um, I suppose reasons to be cheerful <laughs> on a on a gloomy <laughs> July morning. Um, I mean, if we, if we're going with the looking ahead vibe, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening on ED right now. Mm-hmm. Um, most notably, uh, it's it's well, we haven't pinpointed the exact day, but it is essentially our birthday soon. It is our birthday soon. Well, it's kind of our it's been our birthday for months, hasn't it? Because I mentioned this in the at the awards back in January that we were uh, turning twenty. I think we've now officially turned twenty years old. But yes, we're twenty years old. Um, and we're running a, I'm sort of I'm stepping into your territory, Matt, but you're running a, a series of, of content around the 20 years. Exactly. I mean, 20 years in, in the sustainability sphere is, is a long time. I don't think there's many other media publications that have... If any. Yeah, if that, any, can, yeah. that can boast that kind of track record. Um, and it, it's worth, you know... It's worth shouting about and, mm. and singing and dancing about, but instead of just patting ourselves on the back, we do want to <laughs> deliver some um, actual content so um, those who are regular to the website may have seen um, Luke Nichols return to his blogging days uh, with a (laughs) aptly titled sustainability (laughs) coming home Um, evidently one aspect of that is not but sustainability (laughs) is Um, and uh, George has just published a 20 years look back at at green policy Mm. um, as well which was um, it was a real kind of turbulent ride, actually, um, mm. when I was reading through it. A lot of impressive progress, despite our, mm. our best efforts by, by the looks. It was the, the theme I picked up there. And um, looking ahead, we'll have some features out on kind of just 20 years, look back at corporate sustainability, what are the trends, what are the drivers, what are the kind of real milestones. Mm-hmm. Um, a few infographics are going to be hosted up on the site. I believe Sarah's overseeing that, all the kind of key... Um, key moments in the energy transition the, the resource revolution as well mm-hmm. and you know you, you can't just be uh, looking back you're really looking ahead as well and um, we're going out to some of the biggest minds and names in sustainability to kind of gauge where they see this this agenda heading in the next two decades as well yeah so that's we've got Lord Deben uh, writing a blog for us is that mm-hmm. right on policy and we've got John Elkington as well penning a piece for us which mm. should be exciting exactly that Okay, um, well, yeah, George, obviously you took on that 20 years of green policy uh, feature. I mentioned the Brexit white paper just then because a lot's happening right now. Um, past week or so has been huge politically and for the world of green business. Um, as the man that's been um, unofficially dubbed the Nick Robinson of, of green policy, what, what's your take on it all? I prefer the John Snow, <laughs> to be honest with you, Luke. Are there reasons to be optimistic here this week? Um, yes, there are. Uh, in wow. amongst all the the doom and gloom, because mm. um, this I mean they say week is a long time in politics. It's certainly been the case this week. Yeah. Had a government in turmoil, uh, Brexit plan seemingly in tatters, uh, government resignations. Uh, that's not even to mention uh, the arrival of Donald Trump. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, <laughs> but it is optimistic. But it is optimistic. Right. So as you mentioned, we've got this white paper coming out uh, this week, and there are some specific commitments within the white paper that give, which give us uh, reason for optimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got the commitment uh, to have a common rule book on goods. Um, okay. So we're looking like eco-design, that kind of thing, uh, shared tariff arrangements, and probably the best one that I saw um, within the paper is the fact that we've got this commitment to ensure that environmental standards won't slip. Okay. Uh, post Brexit, there's been a lot of concern about that. Um, so it's great to hear that, and that reinforces the point. You know, Michael Gove's green Brexit and all that kind of jazz. Um, so yeah, reasons for optimism, Luke. Good. Well, yeah, and I, I could see there for a little moment in your eyes. There was <laughs> you managed to forget about last night, which was good to see. Um, and on that note, uh, there is a little feature of the show we like to call the sustainability success story of the week. Um, which Sarah's been giving us, um, but George, I'm going to force you to, uh, to to sort of take away that positive mindset after this episode. So I want you to deliver that for us later on. So you've got the next half hour or so to come up with that success story um, and then deliver it at the end. Okay. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, right now, let's get on with the show then. So Matt, I think we officially appointed you the uh, the podcast secretary. Um, during last week's episode, didn't we? Um, so you're the man with the podcast plan, so you're keeping everything in check. Where are we taking this episode then? First uh, things first, we're off to uh, Camden. Um, okay. Go have a little visit with uh, UPS. Um, 
for those who are ED um, regulars that you would have seen, of course, later on at our webinar uh, recently, um, Claire Thompson-Sage really discussing their transition to electric vehicles in terms of urban logistics, the, the, the business case has been built up by them, they're one of the pioneers in this area in terms of investing in electric fleets, both large and, and small, all the mm -hmm. way down to like e-trikes and e-bikes okay. um, to help with those last mile deliveries. And um, yeah, they, they invited um, they invited us out to go to their, their Camden Depot and essentially, you know, get under the bonnet, so to speak, of, of these vehicles, what they do and why they're so important to um, TPS. So um, select stakeholders had a, had a walk around this, this, it was just a depot, it was, it was pretty much an empty warehouse um, in terms of, of look and feel. And then, uh, you know, there were three sections explaining the history of UPS, their relation with, with um, electric vehicles, and then, of course, um, a look ahead to the future with these last mile urban logistic deliveries. And after that, I, I, um, I grabbed their Director of Sustainability, Peter Harris, for a quick chat. Okay, uh, well, it sounds very interesting indeed, so let's get straight into it then. So here's the culmination of Matt's tour of the UPS depot with the firm's uh, European Director of Sustainability, Peter Harris, in full. Uh, okay, Peter, thank you very much for uh, welcoming me up to your Canon depot today. Um, it was it was really interesting to have have a tour around and see not quite in action, but but see at least stationary the, the different types of electric vehicles that UPS are, I suppose, really backing um, in in the market and and in your future, you know, fleet logistics aspect of it. Um, and I, but I suppose for for the people listening at home. Um, it, it's you mentioned it was no coincidence that you invited uh, stakeholders and, and the media and your partners to to the depot today. It kind of ties in well with uh, with Clean Air Day that's that's come up. So so why um, essentially why am I here? I suppose is the question. Like what what were you what were you launching and, and why is now such an important time to do it? Yeah. So uh, in two days' time will be National Clean Air Day, as you uh, rightly say, Matt. And, and we felt that that was a very opportune moment in which to really try to bring together uh, the, the, the current state of the art from our perspective on the transition towards sustainable urban logistics. And, and I think there are, there are a number of pieces to this uh, that, uh, that are important. So the, 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 the first part that's really crucial is the continuing drive towards greater and greater levels of, of efficiency efficiency allows us to use conventional truck technologies but as little of them as possible but then what's really important is to layer on top of that new ideas about new fuels and new technologies that go beyond the diesel truck and in some cases beyond the truck altogether mm. so today we've been looking at uh, where we are with the development of electric vehicles with power supply systems to support those electric vehicles and cycle logistics systems that allow us in, in appropriate circumstances to eliminate the, uh, the the truck from our network completely. And I mean UPS are a real leader in this area. I mean I mean globally as well. I think you mentioned earlier it was it was more than nine thousand alternatively fueled vehicles currently um, in operation. Um, I think I saw some facts earlier that the UK market accounts for about twenty percent of your electric fleet uh, roundabout. Um, and EVs is a real kind of hot topic in, in, I suppose, national policy decisions around air quality, as you mentioned, but businesses are, are seemingly, I, I, I hasten to use the word struggling, but the, the uptake that isn't quite at the levels it needs to be, there's concerns around charging infrastructure, but, but as a company that's been really kind of highly invested in this for a while, what are the main kind of barriers you still see to being able to accelerate your vision further? Yeah. So speaking from an electric vehicle perspective, mm. there are really two key barriers that we've been working to overcome. The first barrier is that there's actually a, 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 a very obvious lack of vehicle product available on the market for a whole host of reasons that, that we could discuss, but it's just not out there. Anything above a very small van. So at the size that we need, 3.5 or 7.5 ton vehicles for urban distribution, they, they, they really don't exist. So to overcome that, we've done two things. We, we developed a bridge product, uh, which has been very successful for us for the past few years, which is a conversion of an existing diesel to, uh, to electric. We've done that with a, with a partner, two partners actually, one German, one British. Hmm. And that's been working very well. But that's only a temporary solution. Uh, we need a brand new electric vehicle uh, platform. 
Um, so we have another project underway with a company called Arrival, which is a uh, British startup based Close, in yeah. Oxford. Uh, and with them, we're developing a, a brand new ground up uh, EV design that we're hoping to get on the road uh, later this year. So it is it is challenging, but but the so the vehicle side of things is is gradually starting to uh, mm. to you know, become feasible. But there's another big difficulty or challenge that we've been working on, which is that even if you have the vehicles, then getting power to those vehicles to be able to recharge them overnight is nowhere near as easy as it seems. Mm. You might imagine you just plug them in, and that's all that uh, that's all you need. Yeah, to do. yeah. Rapidly, what you find is tick particularly in, in legacy buildings, older buildings, like this one. Yeah, this building was built some time ago, not specifically for our use. So we found when we got to just having 10 EVs about five years ago, that when we plugged in the 11th one, we couldn't recharge them all at the same time. We exceeded the maximum power threshold for the, uh, for the building. So initially we overcame that by, by investing in the conventional upgrade method through the local network operator. Hmm. That proved to be very expensive and very inflexible. So when when we reached the new power threshold or started approaching it five years later, just a, a, a year ago, uh, we decided we needed a better approach and we developed a consortium uh, with Cross River Partnership with UK Power Networks, who are the local network operator, and with their services arm, UKPN services to develop a technological solution hmm. to that power limit. And that's come in the shape of a combined smart grid and energy storage system, which has just been commissioned and was officially launched today uh, in, the, in the event. Uh, and what that does is, is, is it, it makes optimal use of the energy that is available without needing to go back to the old method of buying in big new assets yes. and all the cost and inflexibility that's associated with that. So that's now working, and uh, we now have the capacity on this site to go from what was a 63 vehicle uh, overnight recharge limit all the way to the full fleet of 170 vehicles without needing to invest in any additional uh, external architecture to do that. So these things aren't easy, but the solutions are, are becoming, starting to become available. We're, we're trying to create those solutions and then, uh, as as we as we make them uh, yeah, workable and feasible, then they will start to become commercially available, and other operators will be able to benefit from that. Okay, that's really uh, interesting, insightful, and it's it's great to hear a company actively willing to talk about the team issues that, that they've had um, when rolling something like this out. Um, I, you kind of pretty much answered my next question for me, which was, um, as as you kind of accelerated your uptake of EVs, has has the role of an EV as not just transport but as um, a storage facility kind of shifted UPS's um, move into and relationship with aspects like renewables and those storage systems is that something you're now having new opportunities to engage with yeah so one of the things that, that uh, becomes apparent uh, in the journey towards um, better or more sophisticated management of uh, power supplies power supply innovation is that there are a number of different pieces to that pie there will always be some uh, requirement for the conventional grid upgrade that we did five years ago. Mm. There will always be some of that. There will always be, there, there will be uh, a big requirement for the smart grid load distribution type technology that I mentioned. But there's a third piece that, that will be increasingly important, which is about energy storage. Uh, and as part of this project, we actually deployed in the in the yard outside uh, a battery, a large battery, mm -hmm. which acts to, to store energy. That acts as a buffer to support the smart grid in getting the power to the vehicles in, in the most cost-effective way. And the crucial part about that is that at the moment we didn't actually need to do it, but we wanted to because in the future what will happen will be that we will have electric vehicles that will be at the end of their life uh, no longer uh, able to operate as vehicles, but the batteries that are in them will be by far good enough to still be able to operate in an on-site storage, mm. energy storage environment. So one of the opportunities for the fleet industry going forward is the, the, the dual utilization of those battery assets. All of that will be part of bringing down the cost of getting power to EVs, which in turn is all about the transition that's underway right now of bringing down the cost of operating EVs, the vehicle itself and the power supply. And we're, we're approaching a world which is only a few years away now, I think, where 
the, the, the cost of, uh, of buying and deploying an EV, including the power supply, will compete with the equivalent diesel, not just on life cost terms, but in terms of capital expenditure as well. And when we get there, then the game changes because instead of it being a sustainability debate around how many of these could we do mm. you know, for reasons that are non-commercial or non-immediately commercial, then the, the game changes into one of, well, why don't we do them all? Mm. Yeah, and that's a different type of question. So we're not quite there, but that day is coming very quickly. Okay, in- interesting stuff and exciting stuff as well. Um, we heard from Shirley Rodriguez um, earlier during the speech, um, Deputy Mayor of London, obviously, and I am just going to play a little um, snippet of what she said right now. City came into uh, into office uh, a couple of years ago, and one of the, the tasks that, that I was appointed to do was to lead on a, a new environment strategy, um, and that really set at its heart of it the desire for London to become one of the you know the greenest global city. She's obviously outlined the mayor's idea and vision for for London, and it's it's something like eighty percent of journeys in and around London are essentially not by by vehicles and um, it's public transport it's cycling it's it's or it's just walking um and it's, it's this clean air zones everywhere um it's a real new london compared to, to if you walk around uh, today and the role of i suppose uh, a logistics firm like ups must have to completely transform in in a sphere like that um and london is one example but i mean you're director of the same city across europe as well so i'm guessing it's a different conversation with each region that you have to have you can't just there's no one size fits all to this which must make your job so much tougher yeah no, you're absolutely right this is a very decentralized debate mm. yeah there, there is there is no common template there is a common set of challenges uh, but individual cities and individual city mayors value their independence mm. in developing their own solutions to those to those problems to those challenges and of course for us as a, as a as a national regional and global operator the the that uh, is very complex we, we can't possibly be dealing with every city simultaneously so we try to work through uh, organizations that bring cities together and, and we try to prioritize what we're doing and we try to uh, encourage cities to collaborate so for example TFL mm. uh, has a role uh, in bringing cities together in uh, you know, the boroughs together within within London um, and then there are organizations like C40 that operate on a more global basis with city collaboration mm-hmm. but it's not easy uh, and I, I, yeah, it's not a problem that's that's going to go away uh, I, I suspect in the longer term there will be some almost market driven rationalization that will take place uh, but that's a little way off, and in the meantime, we just have to uh, you know, use our resources as wisely as we can. Okay, and I suppose in uh, a bit of blue sky thinking to kind of close this uh, interview off, I mean, cities are getting cleaner, yeah. um, they're also getting smarter, and they're also getting much more kind of condensed. There's, there's less room, there's less space, there's just more people. So how do you envision UPS's role in a, in a smart city of the future? What's going to be different uh, from now and then? Is it going to be more kind of like the e-bikes we, we saw um, kind of rolling around? How, how do you envision that? Mm, that's a really good question. So you're, you're right, we are uh, witnessing the, the design of the future city. This, this is... Uh, a, what we've been involved in today and this whole debate is an urban design experiment. I don't think anybody knows what the future city exactly will look like, but it will need to be cleaner and greener. It will need to be more human. Yeah, and what we what we want to do at UPS is is to be at the leading edge of that transition. So for sure, being efficient is a key part of that. And then technologies like electric vehicles and cycle logistics and the power supplies that are necessary to support them will be a key part of that. Mm-hmm. But there will be other things as well, uh, that some of which we don't even know about yet. And, and what, what's important for me is, is to continually engage in the debate so that we spot these opportunities as they come along. We collaborate with city authorities uh, and indeed national and regional authorities to, to, to seek out the win-wins, to seek out the areas where uh, we can benefit and the cities can benefit as well. Because ultimately, we're all involved in the same challenge. Business needs uh, a city to thrive in order for that business to thrive within the city. And cities in turn need businesses to be healthy, uh, for for them to be healthy. 
So we share these challenges. Yeah, this, it's not about us versus them at all. It's about finding ways to work together and look for solutions that benefit everybody. That's um, really insightful stuff. And I think a good place to finish this chat, I realise um, your kind of sustainable uh, open day as it is today means you're a very busy person. So I, I won't keep you out. And um, I'll certainly be on the lookout. I live in the sticks, so we don't get too many UPS fans come my way. But when I'm up in London, I'll be on the lookout to see what kind of new uh, transportations UPS are, are rolling out. But um, thank you very much for your time, Peter. Excellent. Thank you, man. Fascinating stuff there then. Um, yeah, I love what Peter says there about the whole EV debate being an urban design experiment. Um, great to see UPS positioning itself as, the, as one of the leaders of this transition to make um, last mile urban deliveries um, cleaner and smarter. So thanks very much for them to, for her, uh, to them for hosting us. Uh, so Matt, where are we heading next on this uh, Matt May special episode of the show? Um, as as per usual, I, I stick around in London. Um, okay. It seems to be where we do we do most of our, our heavy hours. We need to get out and about a bit more, don't we? Yeah, probably get out to the countryside. Yeah. You know, get out of the, of the polluted air. Yeah. Um, and um, I was invited along to something called the Green Tech Challenge, um, essentially up near Old Street. So, you know, quite close to Shoreditch, which is probably quite apt, considering um, it was essentially a host of uh, innovators and startup companies who are all delivering these kind of Dragon Den-esque pitches mm -hmm. um, to a host of investors trying to essentially get some money to help commercialise um, to help commercialise their, their products. And Green Tech kind of gives it away. It was all focused on environmental and sustainability, you know, solutions. Um, I didn't have to. I didn't get to sit around and see all the pitches. Unfortunately, it ran quite late into the evening. Okay. In that sense, uh, but before the kind of whole event came underway, I did. I did corner um, some very nervous people just ahead of their pitches and had a quick chat. So first up, this is essentially a group of three interviews that are going to run um, one after the other. Okay. Uh, firstly, um, I had an interview with David Turton, who is the facilitator of the Seabin project. Oh yeah. Um, I'm sure you guys remember the Seabin project was voted the number one innovation by ED readers for mm -hmm. 2017 and essentially drop it into harbour and it just sucks up all the kind of plastic uh, waste and, and debris uh, from the surface water and it, um, I think it's been deployed in like Portsmouth Harbour recently as well. Mm -hmm. um, really, really innovative project on a really kind of focal point of sustainability at the moment in regards to ocean plastics um, and followed... Following that, I, I had another chat with another quite well-known uh, innovator, actually, which is um, Sophie Power, who's the chief executive of Air Labs. Mm -hmm. um, Air Labs are another innovator that seems to be cropping up on our site quite frequently. Now, um, last year, I believe it was, they worked with The Body Shop on these kind of air purifying bus stops that have been deployed around London, and uh, more recently with Stella McCartney on an air purifying store. So they essentially have technology that oh, yeah, can absorb remember, yeah. harmful um, pollutants yeah. and you know replace it with clean air. Um, so, so those two projects are a real good insight into into the purpose of innovators. You know, mm -hmm. um, they believe they have a solution that's good for mankind, and it's it's really interesting to to listen to the people behind the inventions and why they have such a connection with those particular issues. Um, but to finish off, uh, I spoke to one of the judges for the challenge, um, Debbie Ryan, who is the chief executive of the impact investment network and that was the kind of the other end of the of the spectrum um, it was looking at a sector which has been slow to get involved in the sustainability movement I think risk adverse investors quite rightly are are waiting for the right times to back this um, so it was great to get their insight into what impact investment actually is and why it's so important so mm. yeah a range of, of chats coming up well there you go yeah uh so here are let's get straight into them here's matt's uh three back-to-back -back interviews at the green tech green tech challenge easy for me to say uh in full so i am now sat with uh david turton who is the chairman of um the seabin group I, I feel a bit like i'm part of a dragon's den uh um, judging panel this afternoon, uh, the amount of kind of startups that I'm getting to speak to, and <clears throat> David is hopefully the first of many. I don't actually have any say on on what is what is successful and what is not, but um, I thought this would be a good opportunity for our listeners at home to learn a bit more about some of the kind of real um, potentially transformative innovations that are on the cusp of of becoming 
an everyday aspect of, of sustainability. And CBIN, I think, is a great uh, thing to start with, David. So firstly, thank you very much for agreeing for a quick chat with me. Um, I realise you've got a, a pitch to, to prepare for outside. So I suppose that's where we'll, we'll start with. What, what is it that you're, um, you're here in London today for? Oh, thank you. Uh, we're here in London to be part of the Green Tech Challenge, which is a, uh, a group of startups uh, searching for some some funding through raising some capital to, to expand their businesses. For us in particular, we're looking to uh, scale up our business, which is why I'm here. Brilliant. And I mean, our readers are to the, to the site and by association, our listeners to the podcast um, are quite a fan of CBIN and, and the CBIN project that is going on. Um, mm. It can, came out number one in our innovations of the year voting thing um, early this year. But for those who are perhaps unaware, who haven't seen the kind of the videos that have been doing the rounds all over mm. social media recently, if you want to give your, I suppose, a brief of what CBIN is. CBIN is a uh, rubbish bin that's uh, attached to a, a, a dock and it operates 24-7. It basically creates a current across the surface, sucking anything that's on the current, rubbish, marine debris, bio-waste, into a bin. And uh, the bin holds it and collects it until it's emptied, and that's basically what the sea bin does. Operates 24-7. And it's, it's, it's a... It's a I, I don't want to use the word great because it's not a good thing, but it, it must be a great time in terms of the... the global awareness around mm. the kind of amount of waste in the oceans yeah, now. The, the amount of attention that's coming to this issue is amazing. Mm. Now the politicians are starting to take notice, which means there's votes in it. Uh, so that's an ultra-critical time. I, I see us as being one of the, the leaders in putting solutions into the water. Mm. We've got product into the water. Our product's going out every week now. We're in commercial production. So, yeah, it's a very exciting time for us. And, and, and I suppose then in relation, when did when did CBIN come to, to life? When was it first um, set up? And, and did you ever envision you'd get to a time where every, you know, every newspaper you look at, every kind of media channel, you know, ocean waste is, is the big topic? My little brother Andy is the inventor of the product. And at home in mum and dad's garage, there's a, uh, a rubbish bin with fly mesh, a pool filter and whatnot attached to it. That was the very first... Uh, incarnation of uh, a seabin. Then over the last four years, uh, Andy and Pete Siglinski have been uh, working on a, a final product, which is the, the initial one was what was in the video that's gone viral on YouTube, and now we're into our commercial phase, or into our commercial product, which is a culmination of three years of testing, developing our pilot partners' contributions, and just getting it tweaked, so it's uh, commercially viable. Okay, and, and so you're, you're here today to, to essentially get that commercial aspect to it and to be able mm -hmm. to accelerate production, I, I, I take it. But where, where, where's the future lie for, for you and Seabin? What's, what's your main vision in terms of your product? Our, our number one priority is still education and awareness, and that's not going to change. Mm. The only way we're going to fix the oceans is to stop the supply of rubbish and marine debris going in there. Until we stop that supply any bit of cleaning is not going to keep up with the quantity that's going in. So that's our number one focus. Our number two focus is putting solutions into the water, which stage one is the CBIN version 5, which is in production, um, which is going good. Okay. And so uh, uh, am I right in thinking that your, your main aim is to essentially make your product obsolete? Eventually we get to the point where there's no rubbish in the oceans and then that product's kind of served its purpose? Or Our mission statement is to be in a world where sea bins are no longer required. Great, that's, that's, well, that's brilliant. It's a quite an interesting, uh, interesting product um, yeah. model as well. Yeah, whether it takes... Uh, our generation mightn't be able to see it. Mm. Your generation may see it. My kids' generation hopefully will see it. Okay, brilliant. And so, I mean, you, I mean, you probably haven't thought that that hard, that far ahead when the point where the the sea bin is no longer needed. But then, is it just a case of keeping up with the messaging and ethos of the project, and perhaps looking at other kind of waste aspects, or, or is it ocean based? Um, well, the sea bin's the first stage, mm -hmm. um, and that's taking care of the waterways that are attached to to land. Uh, our, our next stages are taking it away from. Um, inshore waters into offshore waters through a variety of different uh, means. We've got a couple of drawings and a couple of concepts, but they're in the uh, bottom drawer at the moment while we focus on making our commercially viable company uh, 
go forth in leaps and bounds. Okay, and I'm, you know, from a personal aspect, I'm sure that will happen. Um, mm. the, the amount of coverage and that positive coverage that Stephen seems to have gotten, it, it, it seems to bode well for the future. Um, but David, I, I, like I said, I realise you've got a, a pitch to prepare for to try and get some of that funding tonight, so mm. I'll, um, I'll let you come with that, and thank you very much for your time. Ah, great, thank you. Okay, so we've discussed one of the big kind of social trends of the last few years in ocean waste and now we're moving right on to the next one which is air quality and it's fitting that I am in central London to discuss this. So joining me next is Sophie Power, the co-founder of Air Labs um, for the it's uh, keen-eared I believe would be the correct term for podcast uh, among you. You've probably heard, heard of Air Labs um, and their recent collaborations with the likes of The Body Shop and uh, Stella McCartney. And as much as I would love to talk you through it, it's probably better that the uh, the actual story came from Sophie herself. So Sophie, first, thank you for uh, agreeing for this chat today. Um, I realize you've got a, a pitch to, to kind of prepare and that you've got to shoot off pretty soon after that. So I will try and keep this brief. Um, but I suppose to start with, um, why don't we just get the listeners kind of up to date with Air Labs and, and what it is you're trying to achieve here? Sure. So we're, we're a team of um, atmospheric chemists, airflow engineers and sensor experts. Um, and what we do is combine together um, to give people clean air to breathe in polluted cities. Um, I co-founded Air Labs when I was pregnant with my first son and looking at the problems in London and realising there was nothing I could do to protect myself from breathing this nitrogen dioxide in, uh, and even particulate matter. And it's really harmful to babies' lungs, especially when they're in the womb. Um, so co-founded Air Labs with a professor of atmospheric chemistry at the University of Copenhagen. And what we've done is create the first technology that's proven to remove um, all harmful pollutants from the air in a low energy, low maintenance way. Um, and what we do is we have that technology that creates this clean air um, and we put it into installations and into products that give that clean air to people to breathe, to protect themselves. Because we're going around all day and what we're breathing is, is not great for our health. And it's certainly not great for our kids. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, it was it was eight eight stories to get up here, and I, I thought I was out of breath. I'm going to blame it on the air pollution <laughs> in my lungs, but it's it's probably the fact that I'm I haven't done much running recently. Um, and and yeah, as as I mentioned, um, you you're already collaborating um around central London with some real purpose driven businesses, which it seems like it matches it matches your kind of story there. And this isn't um uh, simply a, a money making thing that t- turns the wheels. This is a, a real kind of um, passionate concern of yours that you're trying to solve and you've teamed up with lots of the body shop and Stan McCartney who have really good track records on CSR and, and, and um, aspects like that so I suppose um, what, what is it you're, you're here today for? So we're very much at the commercialization stage uh, so the moment we have our, our first consumer product uh, that we did a, a small crowdfunding from last year that launched in October called the Air Bubble uh, and what people don't realise is the worst air they probably bleed in their day is inside their car, um, especially in traffic. If you think about your air intake in your car, it's right by the exhaust mm-hmm. of the car in front of you. Um, and the filters in cars don't actually filter out those gas pollutants and sometimes not even the particles. So our consumer product, the Air Bubble, is released in October, it's on pre-sale now, um, and we're looking for funding to develop that side of the business. We launch in the UK and the US, um, and then certainly for the workplace market. Um, people that are professional drivers, think kind of taxi drivers, ambulance drivers, delivery trucks, they're in this all day, every day, breathing mm-hmm. unhealthy air, and they should be protected. And so that's one side of the business. Um, the rest, we have a huge R&D arm um, based in, in London and Copenhagen, um, developing the best technology in the world to look at integrating into other products. So we've done the Stella McCartney ventilation system, looking to spread that out to, to buildings globally, which really increases the amount of people we can impact. And our kind of city solutions, we have um, teams of amazing airflow modelers, um, and we're looking at how you can really model the airflow and air pollution within the city, layer over the exposure, so layer where the people are, and let's start tailoring solutions to where people are actually going to benefit from them. There's no point cleaning the air in the middle of a park. You've got to clean the air where people are, mm-hmm. um, and that's what a lot of our research is going into. So starting to partner with cities, starting to partner with kind of large landowners, to, to look at the, the impact on the people within. So the air bubble on one side, which is very small unit and consumer, right through buildings, right through to cities. Okay. And I was talking to um, David from Seabin uh, earlier, and I, I kind of, we kind of touched on how it was the, the ideal time for him and his 
um, product because of the, the just the, the global awareness on, on ocean waste. And I suppose certainly in London, is it a similar kind of thing? Has has the interest in in air cleaning tech ever been higher? Considering um, we've had Sadiq Khan so vocal against it, we, we we've broken all these kind of annual limits straight away. I, I know we've been breaking annual limits for a few years, but it seems like the first it seems like the first time where we've actually gone okay, enough is enough. I think it's great. I mean, certainly the awareness is much higher than than, than when Air Labs was founded. Um, a lot of people thought we were crazy, like pollution. That's yeah, a problem. Can you do anything about it? I think certainly the technology side and um, increasing the awareness that there is technology that can protect people now um, is something that we we have to work on. And when we're talking about um, emissions are going to fall um, in some places and in the more um, advanced cities as technology and, and certainly kind of. Um, diesel cars come out, but there's the rest of the world where emissions are only increasing and air quality is only getting worse. So 92% of our world breathe polluted air. So for us, yes, it's a great time in London to talk about it. People are looking to improve their health and looking towards solutions. We're also looking to the rest of the world and thinking this is not a problem that cleans up anytime soon, unfortunately, and Air Labs is going to be around for a long time to come. Okay, well, that's, um, that's a really inspiring way to probably end this conversation, actually. Um, like I said, I realise your time is quite precious uh, this evening, so I will let you get on with the rest of your day, but thank you. Thank you very much. Thank uh, now I think it's time to probably turn our attention to the, uh, the people that are charged with identifying solutions that can make a, a huge societal and environmental impact. Um, the investor world... Is, is getting there, they're, they're playing catch up, um, but they, they are starting to open their eyes um, to this world of, of CSR and sustainability. Um, and to kind of talk us through that is Debbie Ryan, who is the Chief Executive of the Impact Investment Network. Um, so Debbie, firstly, thank you for um, taking time away to talk to me. I realise the reason this event is here is, is largely due to, to you and, and your organisation. Um, but perhaps to our listeners, just a, a bit of background on, on, on the um, network and, and, its, and its relation to that kind of clean tech startups and innovations. It's a pleasure to be here and, and it's my pleasure to share what we do. Uh, the Impact Investment Network was launched originally as the Social Stock Exchange mm-hmm. and it was launched in 2013 by the Prime Minister at the G8 when um, the UK hosted the G8 and they got to choose a special a special theme and the UK government at that time recognised that actually there should be a dedicated market for impact businesses so we launched the social stock exchange but over time it's transitioned because what was really clear and as the impact uh, market is growing it's great to have a stock exchange dedicated to impact businesses for those that are looking to list but we needed to have a wider offering as well. So we're now rebranded as the Impact Investment Network and we do three things. Firstly, we accredit impact for impact businesses. So we will assess them and measure them to the social stock exchange standard and those that pass get that impact accreditation. Secondly, we'll support them to raise investment, but importantly, we'll take them on that journey of being investment ready as well. For impact businesses, very often it's a new world, it's a scary world. And at IIN, as we call ourselves internally, we like to make it feel normal and less scary and not something that you have to be in London to do. You can come and visit us anywhere across the country. We're headquartered in Liverpool now, as well as offices in London and Harrogate. And what we do is try and switch up the impact market and the investment market. So you're talking to normal people uh, who can help you grow your business. We can raise anything from 100k to hundreds of millions, whether that's public finance or whether that's private equity, debt, bonds, funds, we can support whatever your company needs to grow. But we do that in a network. So when you come and work with us, you've got a network of like-minded businesses, those that have been through it before, they've gone through that pain and there's a mentor approach to that. But also there's an internal marketplace, Mm. so you can trade with each other. It's fantastic when we see uh, impact businesses sharing their ideas and trading with other impact businesses, that makes it grow. For example, we've got social housing providers who work with our clean energy providers and everything links together. So you've got a double whammy really, Mm. which is really important in this sector because the investor world is only really just waking up to what impact investment is. And importantly, 
everyone's heard of the millennials. I wish I was a millennial, <laughs> but everyone's heard of the millennials. They've got something like they're going to inherit about thirty trillion pounds in the next couple of week, uh, couple of years, mm-hmm. and they want somewhere to put it, Definitely. and they want different types of businesses, sustainable businesses, to put that money into. And that's our job at IIN. Let's let's showcase some of the fantastic businesses that are out there in the impact space and get the investors to them so we can change the world. And um, I mean, impact is in, in the investment world is, is one of those, I, I, I hate to use the word uh, buzzword because it's in, your, it's in the actual title of, of the network. Um, but I, I suppose, uh, just like the word sustainability, for some it can come across as a bit vague, and then the lack of definition. So, so for the IIN, what what is it that necessarily equates to impact in your eyes? Well, I'll tell you what, it's not. It's not corduroys and sandals. <laughs> okay, a lot of people think impact is just uh, pro-social, pro-environmental. Mm-hmm. It's businesses that are fundamentally set up to make a difference to the planet or to make a difference to the community. And the way I describe it to everyone is if you think of public sector departments, education, healthcare, justice, social housing, financial inclusion, if there's a government department for something, there's probably an impact business serving the community in some way. And that's the best way to describe it. And importantly, when we're testing for impact, we look at the outcomes that businesses deliver, but also the intended consequence of that business and the unintended consequence. So you can't just have a fantastic product, but in the production of that product, you're chopping down a rainforest. We look at all of the aspects Mm. of the business and look at look at all the credentials and then once we're satisfied that they that's done then we give them that impact accreditation and from then on we can introduce them to a whole range of different investors our investors um if you think of the philanthropist over here on the far left hand side and your venture capitalist Mm. right over on the right hand side your impact investment is in somewhere in the middle they want a financial return yes of course yeah but they also want that social return and in um, in consideration of that social return then quite often they will be more patient with that financial return but don't think you're going to get away with it and it's going to be a breeze you have to be commercial and that's what we help businesses think about think about their product their positioning think about the valuation of the company think about their competitors and importantly it's not just enough to have a great idea and a great entrepreneur running the business Mm. if you're looking for investment you've got to get the right people around you in the executive team who've got the capacity and capability to manage their funds because ultimately when you're taking on investment you're taking on someone else's money so you've got to be capable to deliver the outcomes with what you said you were going to do i imagine most people fancy themselves as innovators in, in some way or form when i was younger i thought i'd invented a brand new kind of topping for for toast until my dad relied on me for me that marmalade is like very much much a <laughs> thing in yeah exactly yeah. um but uh, for, for any kind of um, listeners at home who think they've got this, this idea or they're working actively on, on an idea, um, what kind of common pitfalls do you see that to, to, I suppose, pitches in that sense in, in relation to where we are today and what we're about to hear from? Um, what are the kind of common pitfalls that these startups tend to, to act to take that next step to gain these investments? Very often people are passionate about their product or their service or their offer and it's their baby and that's all they think about. From the investor perspective they want to know the commercials, they want to know that it's been poked and product, that there's a market out there for it, that people want to buy it and also that it can deliver the outcomes that you've said in terms of the pro-social, pro-environmental outcomes. Um, very often when people pitch to investors they they get wrapped up in how they got there and why they got there and how fantastic their Mm. their product is but actually what the investor wants to know is how much do you need what are the funds going to be used for what will that enable you to deliver what is the what is the current governance of the organization who owns what and how is that going to work? And actually, do the numbers stack up? Mm. And very often, very often, I see people who haven't considered that um, and, and it instantly um, trips over at that point. And very often, it's a one-chance 
only yeah. affair. And if you've gone in and you've pitched on your passion and not your commercials, then people will switch off. The passion will come after. If the sums add up and the numbers add up, then that's why the investor's there in the first place, because they are passionate about uh, impact investment, but they're not fools. And nobody's going to part with millions of hard-earned cash mm. if you haven't done your homework. So that's what we want people to focus on and really think about. That's really, really interesting, actually. I've done a lot on the kind of road to commercialisation, um, a few features, and I've spoken to a lot of kind of angel investors and that, that kind of stuff, but I've never really heard that stuff about not pitching your passion first. Um, I think that's a really interesting point. And I suppose just to finish off then, I mean, um, what what is kind of your passion? If if, so if there's an innovator come to you and then uh, there was a, is there a certain topic in relation to kind of social environmental stuff that is, is kind of your passion that on a day-to-day basis is something you actively try to act on? I, do you know what my passion is, is seeing businesses, uh, however size, really um, professionally present what they're doing. And my background is really big business. Mm. I was a director at G4S, mm-hmm. big global company, and an Interserve, big global company. And I come across lots of small companies that fail to implement that solid, sound commercial business practice that will give them the foundation to grow. Um, Having just an amazing product and an amazing passion for that product isn't enough to scale your business. It's fundamental to it, but you have to have the other things in place as well. more commercial you are and the bigger you grow the more people you can help the more communities you can serve and the more change you can affect so you have to really put in them foundations to scale and grow okay well it sounds like i've got to go home and crunch numbers on my marmalade invention and see if exactly, there's a place yeah. in the market so Come you can give... talk to me if you yeah. need some help <laughs> I, 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 I will no doubt you'll be in touch about that um but, but debbie i realize um the event's just about to start outside so i'll let you go out and actually enjoy the kind of work that you're here to enjoy but um it's been a pleasure talking to you lovely cheers thanks a lot now if that wasn't uh, inspiring enough to uh, fill you with optimism george i don't know what is so thank you very much to those three uh, or to the two innovators and to the judge as well uh, okay and now sticking with the theme of innovation i think this is an ideal point for us to roll into our regular feature uh, we don't have a jingle yet we should work on those but uh, our feature of the innovation of the week now matt this has traditionally been you that's delivered it but um, our podcast listeners will be pleased to hear that this is not another segment delivered by Matt, <laughs> um, because I believe, Sarah, you've stepped in and taken the reins on this segment. I have. Um, um, while summer's underway and it might seem a bit like silly season, um, what with the heat wave raging on, yeah. um, not down here, but maybe for you guys <laughs> listening, um, the innovations keep pouring in. Um, and one that's really caught our attention this week is it's a sort of series of fitness equipment that okay. can capture kinetic energy and pump it back into the local grid. Ah, interesting. Mm. Okay. So basically by working out on one of these products, so they have a treadmill, elliptical, three kinds of bicycles and a cross trainer, um, you can produce up to 200 watts of electricity an hour. So, so that's entirely green power that can be fed back to the local grid via a power outlet. Oh, interesting. Um, so turning gyms into renewable arrays. Yeah, well, there you were. go. So you can keep fit and... Yeah. I'm surprised that's not already just like a massive thing. Yeah. I, I, maybe it's just me, but I'd be so interested in, in something like that. Yeah. I think surely a lot of people would be like, you're, you're not just like burning off your calories and sweating there's an actual visible kind of output from it it just makes yeah. sense there we go they've got, they've got their first buyer is <laughs> it is it is it commercialized yet do we know or is it something that's still at the pre-commercial stage um so it's just at the beginning of the commercial stage okay. so it's been rolled out at eco gym in brighton um which is oh, reported. Yeah. I know, I know in brighton, <laughs> yeah which is reporting that it's get that it's getting used like a lot more frequently yeah, than okay. the tech that doesn't do that sort of thing so obviously there is demand Okay. That and an interest, as Matt says, in that it's set to be rolled out across more gyms by the end of the year. Okay, who runs it? Um, so it's from EcoPower. EcoPower. EcoPower and Sportsart. Well, there we go, um, and I'm sure that'll be covered then in your Innovation of the Week roundup, mm-hmm. which is being published probably on the same day as this podcast, actually. Um, okay, well, yeah, fantastic choice, Sarah. So uh, we've got two things remaining on this week's episode, I think. So um, George, hopefully by now you've identified your 
sustainability success story of the week, um, but we'll come on to that afterwards because I think we should head now to the sustainability quiz or the susty quiz of the week. Um, I think this is turning into a regular feature because we had this on last in the last episode, the World Cup themed quiz. There we go. I just said the words World Cup. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought that quiz was good fun. Uh, it was it was me versus uh, you, George. Um, so we're bringing it back. Um, now, are we sticking, Matt, you're the, you're the, the podcast secretary, are you sticking with me versus George? How are, you want to, how are we running it? Yeah, I mean, you can do it. I don't know uh, much about this quiz today. <laughs> I, haven't had, I haven't had a chance to see any of the facts and figures. Um, so I don't want to interrupt your game, though. So, right. you know, okay. if, you're, if you're scared of another challenger stepping up, then yeah, I'm happy just to stay with just George, George mm. versus I. Mm. Who, yeah. who won last week? Who won last time? Mm. It was it was Luke, but very narrowly. Yeah, just reminding us. Are we sure about that? We might have to have another listen back. Oh really? You think it was you? Yeah. Actually, I genuinely can't remember who won it. Anyway, so it's I'm one nil sure to someone. We'll have to listen I'm back. Sure it was Luke, yeah. Right. Okay. It's been a busy time. I one can He's got so, the trophy up in his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's currently one nil to me. We'll say unofficially, but um, so we'll keep a score going. So Sarah, what have you got for us for this week? What's the what's the quiz theme? Okay, so the quiz theme is the twenty years quiz um, in keeping with our birthday okay. celebrations. Um, so thinking about 1998, you could be forgiven for thinking about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, um, your pet Furby, your iMac computer, or the launch of Google. Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets was 1998? In the UK, yeah. Oh, wow. I remember writing a book report. I don't know if I think it should have been more recent or further away than that, but it just sounds a bit weird that it was 1998. Maybe you can get so long ago, actually, though. Mm. Yeah, 20 years old. Harry has a kid now, get with the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. But the quiz is more about what was going on in the world of sustainability as the sort of renewables revolution continued to gather pace and businesses um, started to grasp the importance of taking sustainability actions. Okay. So we got pens at the ready. Is it a sort of a, a guess the closest or something like that? Um, it's going to be a guess the closest. Guess, okay. Yes. A guess the closest. Well, whatever it is. Whoever is closest. closest. To the pen. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Go on then. Question one. Okay. So question one is about recycling and recycled content, which has generated a lot of interest recently, with more companies sort of pledging to include it. Mm -hmm. um, in their products, IKEA probably most recently, mm -hmm. um, with tax breaks on recycled content and charges on virgin materials mooted for the new DEFRA waste and resources strategy as well. Um, but it was a different time back at the beginning of the 90s. Um, at the start of the decade in the US, about 8% of munici municipal waste was recycled. Mm -hmm. um, there was a big boom in this percentage by the end of the decade. Okay. But what percentage did it hit in 1999? So US <laughs> municipal recycling rates, yes. 1999. And in 1990 it was 8%. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Did you say significantly higher? <laughs> I'm not giving you any, any <laughs> additional assistance, George. Right. Is that yours, George? I do. Right. What Let's... are we going for? I'm going with 48%. I've gone for 35%. Yeah, that's what I put, even though I'm not in this quiz. <laughs> <laughs> Well, George, Matt, ah. you both clipped it. It was 33% putting it Great. lower than... She did say significant years. rise, and that was what... That's, I <laughs> said that on purpose. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Mind games. So 33%, is it? Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. Um, be interested to know what the UK figure is. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but yeah, what the increase is in the UK. <laughs> anyway, we'll find that. I do know that. If you really? actually read, read my Green Policy blog, you would know. Okay, well, good. That's a good um, Right, 1-0, George. Question 2. Um, we're going to move on to renewables for the... My specialist subject. <laughs> um, so the period between 2000 and 2010 has sort of affectionately been dubbed the renewables revolution. Mm -hmm. um, and studies have shown that globally 430,000 um, megawatts of global capacity for renewables was installed mm -hmm. during that decade. Um, but but it wasn't all cause for celebration because a lot of coal plant capacity was added at the same time. Mm -hmm. um, how much capacity from coal plants was there to complement that? 430,000. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do you want what? it in what units? It's in megawatts. So yeah, 430,000 megawatts. So that's 430 gigawatts. So we can just put it into gigawatts. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay, so we're guessing, just to be clear, we're guessing... Mm -hmm number of gigawatts of coal power capacity mm -hmm. 
in the 2000s? Throughout? Yes. yes. Installed in the 2000s yes. or overall? Installed. Okay. Installed. Oh, okay. That's going to be... Okay, I'm going to we could be so far out here, George. This is going to be ridiculous. <laughs> if there's anyone out there listening to this that knows this spot on, I'd be very surprised. But yeah. Um, okay. So definitely, this is the amount of capacity that was installed in the 2000s. Okay. She's confident. She's nodding. Okay, <laughs> I've gone with that. 110 gigawatts. What about George? This is going to be so different. 900 gigawatts. <laughs> <laughs> I went similar. I got 988. Okay. Wow. So Two sides of the same coin. It's actually much closer to the renewables capacity. It was 475 gigawatts. Oh, right. Okay, so it was close. Bonus oh. point, which country installed the vast majority of that? The coal. Mm -hmm. In the UK? No. In which country? <laughs> yeah, I thought... Globally. Oh, I thought we were talking UK. No. Okay. What, you thought we were talking in the UK when you put 900 people no. <laughs> can, can we cut this part out? <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so, wait, what was the bonus point again? Which country installed? Oh, the, the most coal power. It's got to be, hasn't it? Oh, as if, like, do we just, just have Let's just say it, because like, I think this would just be embarrassing again. To be I'm going to say China. It was China, yeah. which was 350 gigawatts. Oh, I would said China. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow, they installed that amount. Massive percentage. Yeah, actually there. thinking about that, like how we would knew, like China has just continually, like throughout, throughout that period in particular. But hey, what do we know? Uh, well, there we go. One, two, no, who was closer there? So, so you were closer and I had the bonus point, so. No, you were. Oh, I was technically just closer, wasn't I? So it's 2 1. Okay. 2, well, okay, yeah, so there's a bonus point. So 2 1, and this is, is this question 3 of 3? Yes. Right. I'm pleased Still to know, George, three. that I'm sticking with renewables. Oh. <laughs> Why don't I just hand him the point now? <laughs> I wasn't exactly close, though. I was like 300 gigawatts out. So earlier this year, we saw the EU sort of agree that 32% um, of all power should come from renewables by 2030, an increase yeah. from 27%. Mm. Um, but what percentage. Um, of the UK's energy use was renewable back in 1998 when ED was serving our tea. I think I know this. Well, this should be stupid because we're now going to all be proved wrong or something, but okay. We write it down. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely put it in your blog. Yeah, I mm. think it was. Yeah. So it's basically Has George read my blog? It's <laughs> 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 a quiz question. Um, well, and this will also be embarrassing if I get this wrong, but okay. Well, Hit me I've with your best gone, I've gone with 2%. I've also gone with 2%. Oh, so this joint, is, joint point. Well, there we go. At least that we, we're more spot on on the last question. It's good to be right once in a while, isn't it? So um, what does that make it? 3-2? Three, 3-2. Two, three, two. Three, two. In this game to you. So yeah. if it was a World Cup of sustainability, <laughs> no. you would have been knocked out. Yeah, I suppose that's correct. Yeah. Well, hopefully that victory has boosted your morale somewhat. Um, <laughs> Okay, on to the final segment of the show. Thank you for that, Sarah. Because um, we're all waited with uh, bated breath now for George's sustainability success story of the week. And hopefully it's not you winning the, the quiz just then. Um, no. Good. But well, have you got one, first of all? It's not so much a story. <laughs> okay. More of a trend, okay. which I've noted. Um, on the issue of sustainable development goals, one of your favourite yeah. topics. In fact, you think you've got your little love, uh, love pin on your yeah. suit, don't you? Yeah, I'm not wearing a suit right now, but yeah, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't dress up for the podcast. I do have a little lapel pin. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, it's lovely. Yeah. Um, yeah so <laughs> we've uh, we've been covering a lot on the sustainable development goals in the last few months, and it's usually not very good news. We're usually saying how businesses aren't moving from awareness to action in terms mm. of implementing the SDGs. I think we covered something about the UN saying that the, uh, the world was off track to hit the SDGs by 2030. Um, but in the last week, we've seen a couple of stories on our website, um, giving us some more reason for optimism. Um, there was a nice little exclusive from Sarah earlier this week, um, saying the beverage giant Pano Rico, was it, uh, have uh, said they're going to set the uh, SDGs into their sustainability mm -hmm. strategy. Mm -hmm. um, we've also seen big name businesses, I think the likes of Unilever, as the Sainsbury's have teamed up to work on a Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership Initiative to sort of support the progress of the SDGs. Mm -hmm. um, so it's good that the traction's there now. Um, businesses are starting to realise how the framework could be used to transform business for good. Um, and while we're here, I might as well give a shameless plug for exciting content that we've got coming up. Yeah. Um, we've got a little guide on the SDGs, which I'm 
currently developing. Yeah. Um, won't say too much on that now, but watch out for it on the site. I think there's also a, a webinar we've got. We've got a webinar, we've got round we've had a roundtable, uh, we have the yeah, the guide, and I think all of them are really, if there's one thing that's binding them all, and some of the stories you just mentioned, it's that thing of actually moving from ambition to action with them now. It feels like organisations have they've done the first bit, which is probably the, well, is the easier bit of announcing that they're going to do something around the SDGs, and now we're seeing businesses actually begin to take tangible steps to, to embed them and begin actually achieving the goals, because... Yeah, I suppose we're 20 years old as a brand and we're now a lot closer in time to, to, to the 2030 deadline than we were to when Edie was founded. So um, not long to, to go before that action needs to happen. So yes, good. A nice sustainability success story there. Um, well, there you go. Uh, the fun's over. That's a wrap for this episode. Um, George, we did make a commitment at the start of the episode to ensure that we cheered you up as, as part of it. Has that happened? I genuinely do feel a lot better. <laughs> wow. wow, there you go. Um, good. Well, uh, yeah, I know we joked about it, but I think it really is true. You know, sometimes when things in life generally aren't going well politically or in the world of sport um, or current affairs, it's always worth reminding yourself that uh, we as an industry uh, we work in, that we write about, um, seeing that great progress that continues to be made is always a nice little positive boost. Uh, so there you go. Now, um, and on that note, actually, I did have noted down, our, our, when it comes to celebrating sustainable success, our awards are now open. So uh, this is a shameless plug, but the Sustainability Leaders Awards 2019 are open for entries. Um, we've got a host of new categories, new judges, uh, a new judging process, a new theme this year, a new venue. Um, so everything's changed. Um, uh, so really looking forward to that. And if you want to find out more about that and enter our Sustainability Leaders Awards, then just visit awards.ed.net uh, and share your sustainability success story with us um, right now that really is a wrap a huge thanks to all of our podcast guests in this episode uh, Matt are you able to shed any light very briefly on, on what's in store for the next episode perhaps in just a, a couple two or three words mm, no so not what the episode is going to be yet right. there's, there's two it just depends on okay. when a little teaser uh, I'm looking forward to that so until next time it's a goodbye from Matt goodbye goodbye from George goodbye and goodbye from Sarah goodbye and it's a goodbye from me as well goodbye <laughs> <laughs>